Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 10, Stalin's Post-War Clampdown. Last time, we saw how Sarah finally made it back from Siberia and had to scramble for a place to live because her barracks home in Krasnogorsk had been destroyed by aerial bombing during the war. She joined her fellow citizens in their exhilaration over the USSR's victory, but dangerous political developments soon put a lid on her joy. The Soviet Union was having its own version of a Red Scare as Stalin's regime tightened up after the war and displayed a paranoia much more lethal and far-reaching than that of our own Senator Joseph McCarthy. Ominously, post-war state-sponsored anti-Semitism was bringing out the worst in many Soviet citizens and spurring a murderous campaign against the Jews. This was also the era of intense xenophobia and inflated claims of Soviet ingenuity. We invented the radio. We invented the electric light bulb. Sarah's workplace was not spared. She remembered how the director of the Seismology Institute, Vyacheslav Bunchkovsky, threw himself into the xenophobic swing of things at a meeting in 1952 by complaining about the Institute's reliance on Greenwich Mean Time, the gauge by which seismologists all over the world calibrated earthquakes to a tiny fraction of a second. I still remember one phrase. It surprised me so much that I still remember. He said, why must we, the Soviet people, work on Greenwich time when we have our own Kremlin time? Seismologists, by definition, are an international lot who need to collaborate pool their findings, and chart seismic disturbances with precision. People at the meeting understandably responded with a stunned silence. Even for a big-shot Communist Party member like Bunchkovsky, this was a bit over the top. Only two people weren't afraid and said something in response. One of them was Sarah's good friend and colleague, a woman named Sarah Kogan. Kogan tactfully pointed out how awkward it would be to operate according to a time zone out of sync with the rest of the world. Her argument won the day. Bunchkovsky made another unpleasant appearance in our Sarah's life, this time voicing freely his contempt for the Jews. They were both on some kind of temporary assignment at a seismological station in the Crimean town of Simferopol around 850 miles from Moscow. Sarah was with two female friends at a beach in nearby Yalta, and Bunchkovsky came up to them wearing nothing but his bathing suit. We were also nearly naked. This new level of informality evidently broke the ice, and they all started chatting in a friendly way. 
We were laughing about something. Ha ha, he he. Suddenly, he told a horrible anti-Semitic joke. He forgot that I'm Jewish. Bunchkovsky looked at Sarah and became embarrassed. But the damage had been done. Anti-Semitism was back in fashion. Bunchkovsky's joke was just one of the ways Sarah experienced the ugliness unleashed by the regime. The scariest was when the official Soviet newspaper Pravda announced in mid-January 1953 that a cabal of mostly Jewish doctors had killed the Communist Party chief of Leningrad a few years earlier and was plotting to kill other Soviet leaders. The headline read, Vicious Spies and Killers Under the Mask of Academic Physicians, and it highlighted the doctors with Jewish names, linking them, and I quote, to an international Jewish bourgeois nationalist organization. Soviet enterprises fell into line by firing Jewish personnel. People on the street took full advantage of what looked like official permission to harass and assault their fellow Jewish citizens. Sarah had vivid memories of the so-called doctor's plot announcement. She told me she knew then it was a load of crap and only a pretext for the regime to target Soviet Jews. How, I asked, how did she know? It's not like there was a free press that challenged the official story. This set her off. Why do you think that trees are green? I don't know how I knew. But she thought a bit more about this and then said that her friend Rafa Kugel must have told her because he knew everything. Sarah's mother Gita was 66 at the time and she got really scared. Not only was she Jewish, with a past that involved marriage to a man deemed an enemy of the people for his own Jewish bourgeois nationalism, but she was in the medical field. Medicine was now deemed to be chock full of Jewish murderers. Thank goodness nothing happened to Gita, but Sarah thinks that's only because Gita was a nurse midwife, not a full-fledged doctor. There were other repercussions in the family, though. Mira Bielankova, the wife of Gita's nephew, Vicha, lost her job at a children's book publishing house. Vicha was also fired from his position as director of central accounting at the Ministry of Light Industry. Mira and Vicha's son, Arkady, was already doing hard labor in a Soviet prison camp. Moritz Mebel, the cousin Sarah lost touch with in the early 1930s, was then head of a hospital in the new Soviet puppet republic of Estonia. According to the journalist Mark Kurlansky, in his book, The Chosen Few, The Resurrection of Soviet Jewry, Moritz was advised that it was only a matter of time until he was removed from his position in the hospital. When the doctor's plot began, my boss came up to me and asked me to stay after work. So in the evening, when everyone went home, I went to his office. He stood up and said, Sarachka, the first section called me in today. She clarified that the first section in her institute was a branch of the Soviet secret police and that it was headed by a woman. I told her this surprised me. You think only men were doing this? This first section rep started inquiring about her, demanding immediate answers about Sarah's work and loyalty from Sarah's boss, Eugene Savarensky. 
the simplest thing for him to do would have been to take the hint and throw Sarah to the wolves. But instead, he stood up for her. He summoned Sarah to his office, informed her about the first section's inquiry, and asked for her help in drafting a letter that would save her job. You need to understand what I knew then and what I know now. He was taking a huge risk. What if I went to the first section and reported what he did to them? Together, they came up with a dazzling testimonial that lauded Sarah's loyalty and academic contributions. Even I myself laughed and said that there'd be no scholarship in the USSR if there hadn't been a Sarah Mebel. Thanks to her boss, Sarah kept her position at the Institute. Her cousin Moritz also wasn't fired. Benefiting them both, along with all the Jews under attack in the USSR, was a huge surprise. The end of the story, Stalin died. On the 5th of March, 1953, Stalin suffered a stroke that may or may not have been helped along by some of his scheming cronies. Sarah was not among the millions of Soviet citizens who sincerely mourned the death of their leader. But she went along with her colleagues at the Institute to pay her respects at the funeral four days later, heading there down a narrow street by Moscow's Bolshoi Theater. The crowd was huge, and people were jockeying for position by pushing each other. That day, several hundred mourners were trampled in the crush. Sarah wasn't hurt. She ducked under a big truck to wait out the crowd. So I never got to say goodbye to Stalin. She didn't sound at all broken up by this. Though before the war, she had swallowed the propaganda about Stalin's greatness, her opinion had changed. Deep down, I didn't like Stalin. I kept quiet about this, but I didn't like him. I don't know why. For me, he wasn't a person, but rather some kind of... I can't even say it in Russian. He was like some kind of God, a living God. And I didn't believe in God. The doctor's plot turned her off even more. After the doctor's plot, I was furious at Stalin. When the newspapers announced a month after Stalin's death that the doctor's plot had been what they called a mistake, Sarah said she became hysterical for the first time in her life. Why, I wanted to know. It was the feeling of liberation that the Jews weren't guilty. It's not that Sarah believed that the Jewish doctors were guilty as charged, but now she knew for sure. Even though she claimed not to identify as a Jew, we've seen that Sarah often distinguished between Russians and Jews, usually putting herself in the latter category. Her father's arrests and accusations against the Jewish doctors tarred Sarah, her mother, and many of their friends and relatives with the brush that painted all Jews as disloyal. Ironically, anti-Semitism increased Sarah's identification with other Jews, especially after a war with the Nazis. And there was more to come. Over the next few years, there'd be continued revelations about Stalin's atrocities, culminating in Nikita Khrushchev's so-called secret speech at the 20th Party Congress in 1956. It was secret, but even I knew about it. We told each other, I remember how we were shocked. Was what he said really true? 
Even after having lost her father and witnessed so many horrors, Sarah still didn't know the extent of the regime's crimes. Until then, she hadn't fully grasped what had happened. That's when I realized for the first time that my papa's arrest wasn't a mistake. If Khrushchev was telling the truth, it wasn't a mistake. It was the system. Khrushchev's moves to vindicate Stalin's victims spurred questions about Zalia. But what did official rehabilitation matter to a family that had been irrevocably broken? This is when Sarah's mother made it clear she wasn't interested in finding out his fate. She wanted the man, not the piece of paper. Through it all, Sarah continued at her job. So I worked, worked, and worked. Though Sarah lived in a world of corruption, venality, and periodic political terror, she also lived in a world that took women's work seriously. Their emancipation was judged by their contribution to society outside the household. Sarah loved her job. Every day there was something new. On one day, I'd read something. On another day, I'd monitor the seismograph. Even though she didn't have a degree, she was doing serious and meaningful work. By the 1960s, a former colleague was her boss. This was Vladimir Izakovich Kalis Boruk, a well-known scientist who wound up at UCLA in the late 90s and became famous for his claim that he could predict not only earthquakes, but elections, crimes, and terrorist attacks. Not everyone believes it was more than coincidence when he got things right, but he often got things right. Kalis Barak was widely published, his articles appearing not only in Soviet journals, but journals in the West as well. I googled his name and found an S.S. Mabel, Sarah, listed among the authors of a 1966 article translated in 1972 as Computer Determination of Earthquake Focal Depth. Sarah got really excited about seeing her name in print on my computer. The coincidence of my finding this reference on the day of Kalis Borok's 81st birthday on July 31st, 2002, was enough to send her to the phone for a call with a number I found on the web. Also among the authors on the article was a woman named Tamara Jelankina. At the time the Seismology Institute switched over to computers, Sarah and Tamara often worked together at Tamara's tiny Moscow apartment. Tamara lived there with her husband and her mother, a barely literate woman who evidently was at hand when Sarah and Tamara were doing calculations about where and when an earthquake took place, the location of its epicenter, and its precise intensity. They were using some new machine and they often needed to redo their work. Tamara would often say, Oi, I made a mistake and should fix it. I remember how one day her mama said, Listen, Tamara, why do you work? You only make mistake after mistake. Tamara and I laughed a lot about this. Sarah's working with Tamara when Sarah had a much more serious misadventure that brought her into the crosshairs of the secret police. The two women often went to a scientific institute a few hours outside Moscow to use its computer. The institute was in a place called Chernogolovka, and it was involved in some kind of secret work. As outsiders, Sarah and Tamara had to do their work at night, and even then they sometimes waited hours before they got access to the computer. 
They also needed a special pass, and Sarah lost hers. This was very unpleasant. When she went back to Moscow, she had to inform someone in her institute's first section about the lost pass and get a replacement. Though Stalin was dead and the days of mass terror were over, censorship, repression, and fear were still very much in place in the USSR. After Sarah reported the loss, a member of the secret police started harassing her, threatening to report her breach of security to the Institute's director. How was anyone to know she didn't hand it over to a spy? What if she gave it to an enemy? She'd be going somewhere, and there he'd be, watching her and threatening her. After a few times, I got angry. I am a dreadful person when I'm angry. Even if Stalin himself had stood there, I would have told him off. Sarah basically told him to do whatever he was going to do, so long as he left her alone. After that, he stopped bothering me, and there were no repercussions. Sarah was also put in a bad position when she apparently lost a seismogram with the record of a very powerful earthquake in the U.S. Her institute had expected to get a copy, but someone from the American station sent them the actual original, which was supposed to be returned. You understand, the original can't be replaced. I used it, and then I gave the seismogram to our lab assistant to take to the Presidium of the Academy of Sciences. She was referring to the head of the main scientific organization in the USSR. But the seismogram disappeared, something Sarah learned when someone else from the secret police came to see her about its whereabouts. She told him how she gave it to a lab assistant named Shura. He said, well, think again. The seismogram's not there. Where is it? Then he brought the lab assistant in for questioning. Shura confirmed that Sarah gave it to her and that she'd then delivered it to the Presidium as ordered. But no, she had no receipt. Imagine how scared Shura and I were. Lucky for them, a secretary at the Presidium vouched for having gotten it. Someone eventually found the seismogram lying on the floor. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but not only was Sarah's job on the line, so was her freedom. What if she were in league with the Americans? What if she were deliberately trying to humiliate Soviet authorities? Sarah's other recollections about work take us back to those days in Cheremhova when she was required to volunteer to pick strawberries and drag carts loaded with coal out of the mines. As a member of the staff of the Seismology Institute, she had to take part in Subotniks on weekends and for lengthy summer periods. One of the staff's obligations had them cleaning their building before Soviet holidays. Another had them harvesting potatoes in late autumn from a collective farm just outside Moscow. This meant everyone, from the lowly lab assistants to the senior engineers, had to dig in the frozen ground with their hands. Sarah said she ruined hers as a consequence. But in the lean days after the war, while Sarah was away at a farm, her mother could use Sarah's ration card and collect double rations for oil, meat, cereal, bread, and potatoes. Sarah not only got fed pretty well at the farm, she'd come home with a supply of potatoes and carrots. Sarah actually had fond memories of her and her co-worker Subotniks at the collective farm. She was still young after the war, in her late 20s, early 30s, 
and she and other members of the staff would have fun together. Sometimes they'd have parties at night, dancing the foxtrot, waltzes and tangos, never folk dances, as she clarified a bit indignantly when I asked. We were urban. We didn't folk dance in Moscow. They'd sleep on the floor of the peasant hut, sometimes for several days at a time, once for an entire month. Water? It came in a bucket from a well. Toilet? Not surprisingly, it was outside. Anticipating my invariable question, Sarah added, There was no toilet paper. As for their hosts, they'd stay in a separate room, sleeping in a peasant fashion on the stove. Sarah and her co-workers don't seem to have socialized with them. So much for ties between city and country folk. Soviet-educated urbanites and collective farmers may as well have been from different universes. Sarah told me a story she thought would help me understand the extent of the cultural difference. It had to do with a research visit in the 1960s by some of her co-workers to Israel. When they returned, we had a meeting at the Institute and they told us their impressions. They were evidently delighted at what they saw, especially on an Israeli kibbutz, one of the agricultural cooperatives that dominated the Israeli countryside, thanks in part to socialist-minded Jews like her father. If you recall, Zalia helped organize a kibbutz in Palestine before the war. I remember one question. Someone asked, what's a kibbutz? Is it anything like our collective farms? The answer was this. I don't know whether it's like a collective farm or not, but every place the kibbutzniks live, there are very many books and records. Sarah added, I want to tell you that I never saw one book in the collective farms. We're not even talking about records. I thought I'd caught her up here. So how'd you play music when you danced, I asked. They brought their own phonograph. Sarah was expected to continue doing unpaid labor until she retired in 1974. Another job had her and her co-workers working at Moscow's produce supply depots, giant storage lockers, where they'd sift through the produce and throw out the rotten fruit and vegetables. This was great. They got to eat oranges, for them a rare and way too expensive treat. Going through the mounds of potatoes was less pleasant. I asked Sarah whether she and her colleagues resented having to do all this. If they did, they kept it to themselves. No one had the courage to say that. I told her how incredulous my colleagues would be if we were told we had to go harvest potatoes. She acknowledged that this all sounds strange. Even stranger was the nightmare Sarah faced when she and her mother paid for an apartment in Moscow and weren't allowed to move in. Next time we'll hear that story, along with the circumstances of Sarah's marriage to her cousin, Vitya Bielenkov, the years of her life she identified as the very happiest. Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. Robert A. Evans Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yer Yona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FWB. 
Additional music for our series is by Pottington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavatsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah's Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice. <laughs>